A little hidden history, a little pedagogy, a lot of ways we can improve our teaching and mindset so that our history and social studies classrooms tell a more complete, diverse human story. I'm Cheryl Ann Amendola, and this is the Teaching History Her Way podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Teaching History Her Way podcast. I am your host, Cheryl Ann Amendola, and I am really glad that you are here with me. If you are a first-time listener, welcome. You're in for a treat today. And if you are a returning listener, welcome back. I am so glad that you returned. Today, I have author Kitty Feldy with me, and I got the chance to read one of her books, Fina Mendoza is her main character, and I got to read Fina Mendoza, State of the Union. Wonderful, enjoyable book. But before we get into that, let me introduce Kitty. Kitty Feldy is an award-winning journalist, podcaster, and writer of the children's mystery series set on Capitol Hill. She is also host and executive producer of the Book Club for Kids podcast, named one of the top kid casts in the world by the Times of London. The show has won the DC Mayor's Award for Excellence in the Humanities and the California Library Association Technology Award. Kitty writes the Fina Mendoza mystery series of books and podcasts designed to introduce civics education. Kitty says, I used to explain government to grownups. Now I explain it to kids. Her award-winning debut novel, Welcome to Washington, Fina Mendoza, is the tale of the 10-year-old daughter of a member of Congress who solves mysteries on Capitol Hill, including the mystery of the demon cat. In Kitty's latest Fina Mendoza mystery, State of the Union, a mysterious bird poops on the president's head during the State of the Union address. Can Fina outsmart the Secret Service, Capitol Police, and half of Capitol Hill and find that bird? The books have been adapted to an episodic podcast, The Fina Mendoza Mysteries, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Kitty is currently working on a new historical mystery series set in the White House of Theodore Roosevelt, featuring the 18-year-old Alice Roosevelt as our amateur sleuth. Kitty was named Radio Journalist of the Year three times in three years by the LA Press Club and Society of Professional Journalists. She hosted Southern California Public Radio KPCC's afternoon talk show, Talk of the City, for nearly a decade and created the station's Washington Bureau covering Capitol Hill. Kitty is also an award-winning playwright whose work has been produced worldwide. She co-founded LA's Theater of Note and led the playwriting program at the Ola Youth Theater in Los Angeles. She grew up in Compton, the eldest of seven children. Her husband, Tad Daly, is also a writer. Their cat, Trudy Tomato, does not write. So we obviously have someone who is super accomplished with us. Kitty, thank you so <laughs> much for taking time to be with us to talk to us about civic, civic education and your book. Oh, Cheryl Ann, thank you so much for inviting me. It's a real honor to be here. So tell us about the Fina Mendoza mystery series. Tell us about the character, your inspiration for writing. Who is Fina? Well, actually, there is a real live Fina around today. Um, back a few years ago, I was uh, I joined an organization that matched you up with uh, eighth graders and you promised to stay with that kid until they got to college. The idea was to encourage kids who would be the first in their family to go to college to go through the process with him. And the girl I was matched with, her name was Fina. Um, and I didn't know her when she was the age of the Fina I write about, but I imagine what she would be like because she was a little shy, but boy, she was um, my Fina, the real Fina was uh, determined. She was so determined to go to high school and go to college. She got her mother who didn't speak a word of English to 
petitioned the high school that she was assigned to, which was uh, not a particularly good one in downtown Los Angeles. She petitioned to get sent to a better high school on the west side of L.A. I mean, it just she was, you know, she was determined. She was going to get that dream that she had. Um, she graduated from college. She taught school. She got her master's degree and she's working on her Ph.D. now. So, you know, this is a young woman that could conquer the world. And I wanted other little girls who maybe were also a little more shy than even the Fina I know to really kind of have that that burning in their belly to really accomplish the things they dream about. And because I was covering Capitol Hill and I fell in love with it. And, and as a Californian, you know, it may as well be the other side of the world to us. Um, I wanted to share what I found exciting with the, with people back in Southern California or people in, in other parts of the country where you, you don't get to go to Washington. So FINA just kind of gelled in my head. Um, you know, I, I wanted to bring people with me to Washington in ways farther than just the public radio reporting that I was doing. And so those two things kind of came together, my relationship with the other FINA and my love of the world of Washington, D.C. FINA is a really interesting character. So <laughs> I, I got the chance to read the book and Fina in in the beginning of State of the Union, she's she's kind of down on herself a little bit where she doesn't think that she's awesome. And she had just finished solving a mystery in the first book. So there are all kinds of reasons for this character to be really excited to be kind of full of herself, maybe walk around with like little peacock feathers walking out. But she's not <laughs> like that at all. She sees herself as kind of less than her sister, um, somebody that her dad can count on, but not so much really, uh, very bad at math. Um, so how did you, how did you take this character? How do you reconcile those two parts of her? Well, Fina's mom has passed away within the last couple of years. So I think there's a great deal of, especially in the first book, a great deal of sadness that hangs around that family. And, and Fina does want to take responsibility for more than she possibly can as a fourth grader. So I think that's a whole lot of what's going on. Um, and she's kind of, I don't want to say a geek, but she would be the kid who, you know, she she would not be class president. She would not be the most popular girl in her classroom. As you say, she struggles with math. I struggle with math. Um, I was kind of geeky. So I think there's a little bit of Fina in me as well. Although I think her older sister, Gabby, is much more like my personality. Gabby just kind of fills up a room with her personality and she's very outspoken. And I think Fina's a little bit intimidated by that as well. And I also love Abuelita. Oh, <laughs> my favorite character too. This is Fina's grandmother. Um, and she's she's not your typical grandmother. For example, in the first book, um, she was supposed to come with the family when they moved. Well, let me back up a little bit. In Washington, in the old days, people used to live in Washington, D.C. if you worked in Congress because it took so long to get back to your district. Well, when jet planes came in, people were able to fly back on weekends. And that's what most members of Congress do. They leave their families back in Los Angeles. So in my story, that's what happened in the, in the beginning is the family lived in Los Angeles and the dad, who's the congressman, would fly back every weekend. Well, when mom dies, the family moves to the East Coast. They move to Washington, D.C. And grandmother was supposed to move with them. But Abuelita likes to gamble a bit. And so she was out at the Indian casinos and fell off the bar stool um, while she was playing blackjack and broke her leg. So, so she arrives finally in Washington, D.C. in the second book. And um, while her son is a Democrat, she is a major 
fan of Ronald Reagan. And the reason for that is because grandmother was uh, one of those who got amnesty under the 1986 Immigration Reform and Control Act of that year that Ronald Reagan signed. So to her, Ronald Reagan is her hero, even though her husband keeps saying Congress passed the law. He just signed it. But she thinks Ronald Reagan walks on air. So that's sort of the dynamic that's set up within the family. But she is just a character. She's not afraid to challenge her son. She's not afraid to tell the truth. She fights to, you know, to for um, for Fina to uh, stand up for herself. I mean, and she's funny. I think she's a funny character. That's one of the things that I really liked about your book. So as we move into the civic education part of this. So Fina Mendoza has, a, I guess we could call it a family of mixed politics. And I know that that is relatable to me as an adult. And I'm sure to students who are politically aware, who knows who know what's going on in their families or between families and friends. Um, so it was actually really nice to read about people who still love each other and get along, but are on opposite ends of the political spectrum who can talk without arguing, et cetera. Um, and I also felt that the book was really fair and 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 balanced. So Fina's Thank dad you. is is a Democratic um, congressman, and he in the State of the Union book is going to uh, give the rebuttal afterwards. And the book explains what a rebuttal is, and it explains what the State of the Union is. And it's it's very funny because he talks about how he's going to complain about the president and then complain about him in Spanish. Um, and um, I, I just thought that it treated it was very fair, and it also was able to give a message to kids that. Uh, you don't have to necessarily agree on politics to be friends. You can you agree on humanity. You agree on people's humanity. You agree on love, but you don't necessarily agree on everything. Exactly. And I found that, you know, I used to cover the California delegation. There were 55 members at that point in time when I was covering Congress. And some of the people I liked the best were, you know, they were in both parties. And when I when I wrote FINA, I asked members of both sides of the aisle to write a blurb and it wasn't hard to get people to say yes. So, you know, I always try to have bipartisan blurbs for the books and it's true. I mean, because they're human beings, they come to Capitol Hill because they want to make a difference. They want to do something good. They're not this, you know, either side paying them as evil and grasping and money grubbing and all that kind of stuff. These are people who originally came to the Hill to try to make a difference in the world. And that's what I want, you know, that next generation to take away, that they won't be disillusioned before they're even old enough to vote. You know, let's get them excited about the future. Let's get them engaged with um, with what's going to be their their world when they grow up. And the book offers a place for your kids who are who are on if they've made decisions that are political yet or their families who are on both sides of the aisle. So um, it gives everybody a place in the government, whereas I know in some in some places, if you are if you're blue in a sea of red, you don't necessarily feel welcome. Or if you're red in a sea of blue, you don't necessarily feel welcome. But the Fina Mendoza series brings everybody in. Well, I'm working, getting ready to work on book three in uh, 2023, and it's called Snake in the Grass, and it's really going to get into the weeds, <laughs> literally, with um, the the whole idea of the uh, nastiness, that, that the partisanship that's going on in many ways. So we'll see how that plays out. I'm looking forward to that because it's tough to explain that to your younger middle school set. Well, I'll tell you the one thing I am 
very proud of, and that is on the podcast side. We do episodic podcasts, um, which follow the book. They're not exactly what the book has, but they're pretty much along the way you follow that. And we we have done some extra episodes, uh, one addressing um, kids voting. But after January 6th, you know, when I'm watching television and I worked in that building and it hit very close to home to me, it occurred to me to think about all those kids who were going to school in Cap on Capitol Hill only a block or two away from the U.S. Capitol. And most of them, their parents worked in that building. And how do they talk to their kids? So I talked to a number of teachers uh, around Capitol Hill and asked them what the conversations were like in the classroom. And the information they gave me, I put to use in a very special two-part episode of the Fina Mendoza Mysteries podcast called um, Losing is Democratic. Because that to me was the larger question that kids could take away that, you know, you can't have a baseball game unless somebody wins and someone loses. You can have World Cup, but doing that way. But but you can't have a spelling bee without winners and losers. And so the same thing in American democracy, you need to have winners and losers. In other words, to try to put that into the context that a fourth grader, a third grader, even a second grader could take away with them and not feel afraid. And that was the point of that. Yeah, I mean, I'm up in New Jersey and that was a really difficult conversation. Many difficult conversations. We're still having them. Yeah. Uh, even even on the eighth grade level, uh, we talked mm-hmm. to fifth graders about it and we focused on fairness and we talked to eighth graders about it and we could get a little bit more into the the politics of it and um and and like the constitutionality because they had studied it already. Sure. But I think no matter where we're living, it was it was a hard conversation for all for all of us, teachers and students, parents. Well, and, and then when the um, hearings happened, um, I took the the audio script and turned it into a novella. So it's like ninety nine cents on Amazon, so you can actually have that on your Kindle and talk to your kids about it, or listen to the podcast if you're going to have that conversation. And I felt so lucky, Cheryl Ann, because. Um, I've stayed in touch with a number of the people I know on Capitol Hill, including um, somebody on Schiff's staff. And um, when I was in D.C. this summer and asked if he had time for coffee, he said, no, but I can get you into the hearing. So I got to sit in the front row and watch. It was the one about the um, election workers. And and it was so close. And as a radio reporter, you're always in the back of the room. So this is like as close as I've ever gotten to the front of the room ever. Ten years of covering Capitol Hill, I was always in the back of the room. And I had to keep moving my purse because, you know, here's Liz Cheney wanting to shake hands with all of the people on the um, on the dais who had testified. And I'm like, oh, don't trip on my you know, purse handle. That's all I need to do is, you know, give Liz Cheney a broken leg. That wouldn't work for So, and I actually got to write for the New York Daily News um, an op-ed about the experience um, because I had worked as a poll worker myself. So it was kind of, again, identifying with the people who were in the room. Wow. That's incredible. It was really incredible. I mean, it was really a moving experience to, to almost to put the period at the end of the whole January 6th experience. So I want to shift gears a little bit. So State of the Union touches on immigration reform and protest. Why did you think that that was an important that was important to include? And then if you want to go a little bit further, what other important policy vehicles do you think we as teachers can use to teach civic responsibility? Well, the 1986 law that passed, I was still reporting. I was early in my reporting career. And it's like, how do you explain something that complicated especially in like a one minute or three minute report on public radio. And my editor said, go find a couple who's going through the process. So 
I found a couple and we did a series of reports, things like, you know, him talking about collecting a wheelbarrow full of paper. They had to prove that they had worked and lived in the United States for um, 10 years. That was what you had to prove and never taken any government money um, like Medicare or anything like that. So or Medicaid. Um, So I knew the issue really well. And I had a story I really identified with this couple that I had covered for years. So I knew that also immigration comes up every other year in Congress. Just now, you know, there was a measure that was being floated around and then died. It's, it keeps dying. It keeps getting brought up and dying. So we really haven't passed an immigration reform bill, a big one, since 86. So I knew this was a good issue that I knew was going to come up and probably would be appropriate. And it was appropriate to this family because it was part of their history, their own family history. And I knew that I could get, I had an emotional attachment to this family that I was writing about, but also the family I knew who had gone through that process. So that was why that issue was central to uh, to the story. And if you're going to show people, you know, sort of a window into what's going on on Capitol Hill, that was a good way to do it. You know, it was both personal, but also um, political and and um, and that. And then as far as, you know, teachers teaching this stuff, you know, it's it is we are right now because we are in the middle of culture wars. It's really crazy time that, you know, you can't suggest anything without people going crazy about the oddest things, not the oddest things, but things that you just don't think are going to set fires and suddenly fires start. So I would I would this is a. This is the way I like to think about teaching those tar- hard topics. In many ways, it's the same way that I was assigned to cover immigration reform. And that was find the principals who are in, find a person, find a person or a couple or somebody who's involved in the issue. And it's through their lens that you can tell the larger, more complicated story. Um, and the other thing is just, you know, the details. Um, there, For me to try to remember anything in social studies it's like the telling detail that sticks out. So for example, when I was growing up, there was a really cheesy uh, Disney movie called Johnny Tremaine. And um, it's based on a, a Newbery award-winning novel. No, it's not very good. The movie's not bad. But there was a scene in that film which tells the tale of the Boston Tea Party and the um, the rise of the revolution in Boston, where he's working in a silversmith's shop on a Sunday, which they're not supposed to be doing. And somebody knocks over a sil- molten silver and he gets fallen and his hand goes in the, in the silver. And then he has his hand- fingers are fused together. Now that image, I can still, you know, it's thousands of years later, I can still have that image in my head. And to me, that's what I hang the American revolution on. It's a story with a detail that I can hold on to me. You know, if you tested me on it, that's what I would use as my, you know, my um, mind palace that would take me to where I needed to go. So it's, um, it's less of it's I'm te- I'm saying less about, tackling controversial topics. I'm just more suggesting the larger way of tackling sometimes tedious um, history topics that the kids just aren't interested in. And that's, you know, find the person and find the detail. And I think that goes for a lot of the things that we teach. If you can make it personal either to the student or as I always say on this podcast, representation matters. So yes helping them build empathy with a story will then get them more invested in that larger picture. It's especially true if it is related directly to them because our students are self-centered. That's where they are developmentally and that's okay. (laughs) That just, it is what it is. Um, But even more, even more importantly, if we can get them to step outside of who they are and 
feel for someone, then they're going to remember all of those details. Then they're going to be excited to learn more. Then they're always, they're also going to be able, as Kitty just told us, to pick out those larger issues based on the story that they've heard. So anytime that you can grab a narrative, you should. And and I'll put in a pitch of, you know, I'm a big fan of fiction, historic fiction, because again, you're getting a character, you're getting the details. And usually what happens is if you like the book, it makes you interested in the world where that book is, is, is set. So you're interested in the geography, you're interested in the story, you're interested in the history. And again, it gets back to story. I really believe it's all at the heart of story. If we care about the people, we're going to care about everything else. And that is exactly why civic education is so important, because civic education teaches us to care about we the people. Yeah. Amen to that. So before we close out, what tips or suggestions do you have for teachers about teaching civic education? Do you have a strong opinion about why she why we should do it or a suggestion for a really good way how to? I am a great believer in participatory democracy. But I come from a family where my mother, in my family, we never ate grapes the entire time I was growing up. I never had grapes because my mother was a big supporter of Cesar Chavez and the foundation of the United Farm Workers who were trying to unionize the people out picking the grapes. She had us out in front of grocery stores on weekends, handing out flyers, suggesting that other people also boycott grapes. So she dragged me out on before elections to knock on doors to get out the vote. I mean, I was... I was not particular, not how I really wanted to spend my weekends. In hindsight, I'm very happy I did because it really made me care about what we're doing here. You know, what, what is the basic foundation? What are our freedoms? What are the things we care about that our government can help protect? What are the things that really matter to us as a society? All of those things came to the fore because I felt like I had made a difference. I felt like I could, um, even though I couldn't vote, I could actually make a difference in the world. And that's what I think that we need to find in the civics world is a way for kids more than just voting for class president, but other ways that they can actually get involved. Um, They can help out at polling places, man, watching people vote. It's very, not that people, mostly they put it in the mailbox these days, but to go to polling centers and volunteer, there's all kinds of ways you can make phone calls at a candidate's office. Um, There's things you can do, even if you can't vote, to really make a difference in society. Maybe there's something in your town that you want to fix. When I go do class visits, um, and I do them for free on Zoom, we end with, when I do them in person, we get pre-stamped postcards, and we have them addressed to their member of Congress. And I ask kids to come up with one thing they would like fixed. And if they have a solution, so much the better. But if they don't, that's okay. And write that letter to that member of Congress. And then I contact their office to make sure they get the letter back from the from the office. But and the kids are so creative. You know, they were asking about things that weren't necessarily federal problems, like, you know, that traffic light at the corner that doesn't work very well or the homeless. You know, there's something that these kids are really caring about. And it's so to me, it's so heartening to hear how articulate and passionate kids are about fixing the world because it's their world. They're going to inherit and you can empower them now. And that to me is what civics education should do, should make every kid feel that, yes, this is my country. This is something I can do. And I can start doing it right now. 
I love that. And that is such a wonderful place for us to end and an inspiring place for us to end. And listeners, if you think of something that your students can do right now, please feel free to share it. Share it on Twitter. Share it on Instagram. Tag us. Uh, I am at History Herway on Twitter and at Teaching History Herway on Instagram. Kitty, do you want to share your social media handles? I'm at Kitty Feldy and Fina Mendoza Mysteries. Those are the two places to find me. Please tell us what you're doing in your classrooms. We would love to hear it. And if you would like to find out more about Kitty Feldy, if you would like to schedule an author visit, you can visit her at kittyfeldy.com, K-I-T-T-Y-F-E-L-D-E.com. You can also purchase her book, paperback, hardcover, and Kindle on Amazon. And if you are interested in hanging out with me somewhere else, Twitter, at History Herway, Instagram, at Teaching History Herway, or teachinghistoryherway.com on my website, you are... I, I love hearing from you. So please join me elsewhere in this wonderful online world. Kitty, thank you so much for being here with us today. Sherilyn, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. I can't wait to read more of what Fina Mendoza is doing. And also (laughs) your Roosevelt series sounds very interesting as well. (laughs) Just a dead body here and there. That's all. (laughs) And a bird pooping on the president's head. And a bird pooping on the, you know, what? you gotta have it all. (laughs) Listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. I will catch you next time. In the meantime, you have a wonderful week.